Yeah, this is going to be the most eloquent episode ever. <laughs> it might have been if you uh, if we did it a few years ago, but since working with Alex and Steve, my language. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome. I'm Steve. And I'm Al. And I'm Chrome Brutus. <laughs> and I'm Joe. And this is Fools with Tools, a podcast for the shit shooting shrimp shonger. Shrimp shrimp shonger. That's not a word. Um, hello, welcome. How is everyone? <laughs> Joe, you're the guest. How are you? Introduce yourself, tell people who you are and why we have you on. My name is Joe Garnett. I am a blacksmith. I work with Steve at The Forge, Alex Pohl Ironwork. It has taken me a very long time to get on this podcast <laughs> because Steve has been very uh, reluctant to have me. That's because guest. I don't want everyone to know that all I do is make tea. Uh, no, I think it's because I'm a dickhead. Well, that as well. I'm going to talk a load of shit. Yeah. <laughs> what have you been up to this week? This week, I have been making a few things in The Forge, as I do every week. Uh, we've had a lot of wholesale orders that we've been working on getting out. It's coming into barbecue season, so lots of barbecue tongs and spatulas and forks and fire rakes. Many, many things. And mushroom spikes. And mushroom spikes. Yeah, one of our clients out in Norway has ordered mushroom spikes. We're not quite sure what they're for, but we made them anyway. Mm -hmm. What 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 are the <laughs> defining characteristics of a mushroom spike versus it's one, like a spike. One end is spiky and the other end isn't. We haven't worked out if they're for picking mushrooms. So oh, mushrooms right. So not now. like a skewer. No, no, no. They're, ah. they're about four inches long. Uh, cleaning, maybe? Getting all the, like, yeah. the you know, you peel them and stuff? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. We should have asked that earlier. Yeah. Or some sort of spore spreading tool. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh, mister. <laughs> <laughs> you spore spreader. Anyway, uh, also this week we had a pizza night at the Forge, which I'm sure Steve will talk about some more in a yeah. moment. At this weekend, I've done some clay pigeon shooting. Yeah. Which I found incredibly enjoyable, and I am now obsessed with it. I haven't done that in ages. And so I will be applying for my firearms license very sh very shortly. Have I got a right reference for you as well? As uh, well? No, I thought I'd choose someone I like. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it has to be, uh, have to be like a professional or a responsible member of society. <laughs> <laughs> they I'm have, responsible. They have to be of good character, hence no. Steve is disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Steve. Fuck you all. I am so sorry. I've also been doing a lot of running because I'm an idiot and ended mm. a baby ultra marathon. So I've been doing a lot of running and my legs hurt. How many miles have you got to run? I've got to run 31 miles. How many How many have you kilometers. run in a one go so far? So far I've done 30 kilometers, which I think is 18 miles. And is it just against babies or is it all ages? Uh, it's all... <laughs> <laughs> all ages may apply, although not everyone is allowed to use a buggy. I found that out the hard way. <laughs> I would um, be really impressed if I saw a baby run 30 miles. I'd be really <laughs> impressed if I saw a baby run. <laughs> and probably quite freaked out. Yeah, me too. It'd be like, it'd be a, a sort of zombie movie, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, when you see babies, like there was the, the Evian advert where like, they <laughs> yeah, made babies like, do synchronized, synchronized swimming and stuff. <laughs> Genuinely freaks me out. And that is why Steve will never have children. Mm. Just in case they run at an early age. Yes. Yeah, in case they put on suits and act like businessmen. All right, is that it? I think that is all I've been up to. Cool. Brett, what about you? What have you been doing? Oh, we've been dealing with the typical bureaucracy and red tapiness of what is my life nowadays, I guess. Steve, I know I chatted with you earlier on in the week, but 
Uh, it turns out with COVID and the closings and, and all the things associated with me finally registering and licensing my vehicle and becoming a, an upstanding citizen of the state of California. Oh, Never yeah. happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there was something very interesting that the state of New York decided to do, which was tell everybody they could jog on about having insurances in other states during the the move. So if you if you moved out of the state of New York and needed to register your car in another state and they were closed, the DMVs were all closed. New York doesn't care that you had car insurance, which you are required to have. And because of that, they suspended my driver's license without me knowing and without any heads up. <laughs> so I was actually chatting with a uh, the DMV rep to get the title for my vehicle because I have to have that for the registration, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, she goes, your license is suspended. That's an issue. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It is. What do we need to do about it? And after a lot of talks back and forth between different companies, the local DMV, the New York DMV, who's my rep, she pulled some seriously weird shit to get it to where New York just doesn't recognize that I needed insurance in that time. We effectively sold my car that I still own and have the yeah. title of. Let's not go into too many details, just in case there's an off <laughs> chance of this getting back around. But she knew the loopholes to the system and effectively said she's been having to do this because New York didn't change any of their, I don't know, the bureaucracy of it all. They didn't change anything during the pandemic. So, yeah. Honestly, I've, I felt almost like on house arrest for the last week, just feeling a bit sketchy about um, driving the car or anything like that. My license is now unsuspended and I have my nice little sheet of paper that says I have a California driver's license, but I still have to go through the registration process and get the title for the vehicle, which she held off doing and all this. It's all timing and nonsense. Amidst that, trying to get work done um, and starting a one of the fabrication projects that I showed you guys off the air because I don't want to talk about it here because yeah. somebody might listen. Can't give away that little secret because it is a bit of a surprise. Um, we got two fabrication projects to work on in the coming weeks. And then um, still just making progress on the house and the cabin stuff. We're on a wait list for the electricity. Going to hopefully figure out how to start running the solar panels over there with the gold zeros just so I can maybe work on site a little bit more. And other than that, it just feels like that weird to-do list thing that we always talk about where it's a mile long. You're like, I yeah. swear I've gotten stuff done this week, <laughs> but it never seems to get shorter. And yeah. uh, I really, really hate that feeling of not not visually being able to make progress on things, but knowing that I'm doing a lot of stuff. You just need to write more on your to-do list. That's it. <laughs> Joe's got it. Yeah. Just have a bigger to-do list. You'd be fine. Yeah. Um, but that's it for me. Just nice. um, kind of the standard nonsense. Yeah. I mean, this. Just have just have other lists. Like showing <laughs> lists. Like, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. I have you to separate them. Look at two lists at the same time. So just, just split it. <laughs> I need the multiple <laughs> post-it notes like Al's got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that way, because it, it feels really good then. Because when, when you've ticked off like a few, you can scrunch that up and be like, ah, I'm done with a to-do list. And then realize you've got 12 more to look at but yeah yeah i did chat with steve a little bit though earlier in the week about the mot stuff that you guys have to do and noting that because we have the differing states and it's the regulations are different between which state and county and all that nonsense steve i now have this weird thing in my gut about bringing my truck actually to the dmv and having them go oh no it's a piece of crap like we can't <laughs> register this <laughs> 
well knowing that there are just crap boxes driving along yeah. the streets everywhere that are registered and plated and everything. But yeah. for some reason, I'm just like, everything has gone wrong. <laughs> what are the chances I show up and they go, now see your wheels are too small. <laughs> Can't do it. I've just got this image of you now driving along in a flatbed pickup with skateboard wheels in it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, as, as long as your brakes work, that's that's all that matters. That's that's that fine. should be the case. Should be check your brakes. Somewhere. Everyone at home, go out now and check your brakes because that's you need to stop. <laughs> you need to Thanks, stop. Steve. <laughs> How far your MOT with yeah. Steve House? Yeah, zip ties. Cool. Uh, Al, what about you? What have you talking of MOTs? Ah. <laughs> Brett, if it's any consolation with the uh, the ball lake of the the DMV, it sounds like from state to state, our equivalent of DMV is in a, is in a different fucking country. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so I I made a journey down to um, via Gloucester services. Uh, other services are available. Um, yes. Went to a commercial sandblasters, which was the single most fun thing I think I've ever done. If, <laughs> if they did like days out at a sandblasters, I think people would go. Um, you you don't even have to take anything with you. You could just sandblast anything. It's it's, it's <laughs> so like cathartic and yeah. uh, satisfying. Um, but basically, they were like a cleaning company who did like carpets and pressure washing and stuff, and they just branched out into uh, blast cabinets, and they got a few machines. And they've just never looked back. Um, and the idea is that you can just rent the space by the hour. So it was just me on my own yeah. with like half a dozen shot blasting machines <laughs> ranging from like one that just had little uh, ground up kernels of corn, it's yeah. like super fine corn that you mm -hmm. can shoot. And it basically doesn't take any metal away. You can just use it to, to take off paint or finish or anything like that. Yeah. It's a really high grit, like aluminum oxide. Yeah. And then they had a vapor cabinet as well to doing nice. uh, like aluminium parts. And I even tried some plastics as well. So taking down, I took down some of the, the discolored like yeah. console plastics, see if I could get some of that um, discoloration coloration off. That worked a treat. And what was nice is it left a texture on it. Yeah. So if you were to just sand the plastics back, you could get rid of that layer, but it would be smooth. Yeah. And mm. you couldn't get that nice texture back again that was in the mold. Um, right. So shot blasting is perfect for that. Quick question on that. Yes. Uh, the, how big do the kind of, the areas go like as in could you i know you did wheels would you be able to take yeah. down like a whole car or um no 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 so the biggest i'd say the biggest machine was like four feet long no right. maybe maybe five feet long yeah and then three feet deep and three feet high yeah so you could do a panel from a yeah. car but these are cabinets it's not just i mean yeah, if you want to just shot blast out in the open yeah. air you can do that yeah. You can't do it there, obviously, because yeah. this is just in a unit. Um, but yeah, if you want to shot blast a car, you just have to do a, a, an outdoor shot blast. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming it's the same tech. I, it, yeah, you, it's you pretty much just, like yeah, a lot. Just of... not got the same extractor and stuff. Yeah, because yeah, I, 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 I could just be in there with no like, no PPE on, because complete extraction, completely clean. Yeah, even like you don't even need hearing protection because everything's just like all isolated. Yeah, yeah super satisfying. Right. Uh, this afternoon, I got the third episode of the vlog out for the camper build and um, <laughs> it was twice as long as the previous episodes just <laughs> so much shit i've been doing uh, and then all today and yesterday i've been painting all the parts that i blasted because i didn't want them to just like flash rust after yeah, going through all that effort 
the best I, part of the vlog update was the very end, though. <laughs> I sat and had it on in the background, and then that last 30 seconds, I was like, oh. Marvel <laughs> film. Wait till you're just, you're just there for the end credits. Um, and then I went and picked up that behind me. It's a 36, I didn't even know they did these, 36-inch flat-screen CRTV. Oh, my God. Which weighs... 88 kilograms or 200 pounds for our American friends, um, which was a lot of fun carrying it out of a little old lady's house on my own. Yeah, mate. <laughs> so, so that is now permanently on that table because I can't yeah. remember, uh, where it is. Um, and that is that TV older than Joe? That TV is older than Joe. When's that TV day from? 2014. <laughs> no, I reckon that's like I reckon that's 1998, 1999. Yeah. Oh, not quite. So not quite. <laughs> Cutting it close. I'll shave the beard and then it will be. <laughs> oh, there you go. I'll shave the tobacco stains off. Oh, okay. <laughs> Steve, Steve, post a picture on Alex Paul Ironwork of the television. And a shaven Joe. <laughs> and have people see which one's older. Which is older. Yeah. Love a poll. Take a guess. We'll send you a coffee scoop if we get it right. Would that be an Alex poll? Uh, oh, it's like a poll, like two L's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also planted the first seeds of the year. So it's my first attempt at planting from my own seeds. So, oh, yeah. Seeds from Carlos from the chilies, and we'll see if that works. I've never done that before. We'll find out. Cool. That's me. Cool. Uh, I have also been planting seeds, actually. I already had a few tomato plants in that I planted earlier in the year. I think I spoke about it, but I've planted a load more stuff. The first few bits of like sown straight in the ground ones have gone outside. Apparently, we're going back to winter tomorrow, so that was a bad idea. Um, well, the snow and hail, if that's anything to go by that we had today, but yeah, we're already there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yay. Um, but that should hopefully just be this week. So the rest of the outdoor stuff will be getting sown next week. And then it's just a, a case of like a few more that are going to be planted or sown in pots and then transferred outside. Um, so my bedroom windowsill at the moment is just a mass of little propagators and random pots and i've just been buying the um like you know the really useful box company clear plastic tubs just getting them planting seeds in like in pots in there and then putting the lid on and then it's essentially a propagator so it's nice and simple i also rode a horse for the first time ever which was weird <laughs> and i don't i don't think the horse was quite expecting me to weigh as much as i do did uh, they have one big enough for you uh no no this this horse was not happy about it but yeah, that was uh, terrifying. Oh yeah, well, I went back to the gym because we because the gyms are back open again in uh, another week, I think. Um, so my gym has been doing some back to gym kind of prep classes, uh, which Ben has been running, um, and it's just lots of stretching and really light body weight stuff. But kind of the sort of thing that's going to be good if you've been sat around for the last six months not going to the gym so that was quite nice to kind of get back into that it's a lot of the stuff that we've been doing at home just a bit more intense apparently i need it because we're now doing a regular pizza night at the workshop because pizza's delicious and having two three pizza ovens is fucking wondrous and even the gluten-free uh pizza dough worked really nicely so 
Whose um, recipe was that? Jamie Oliver. Shout out to Jamie Oliver. Yeah. yeah. So it's a Jamie Oliver uh, yogurt-based flatbread recipe where yeah. you substitute the flour for gluten-free flour, and it works like a dream. Yeah, wow. absolutely perfect. It's literally like equal parts uh, gluten-free self-raising flour and yogurt. So like a 500 ml tub of yogurt and half a bag of flour, and like a teaspoon and a half of baking powder, and fucking winner. It's a bit of a shit to spread, but it tastes delicious. It goes nice and crispy, kind of bubbles a little bit. It's yeah. It's, Do you still it's, need it, or is it essentially just a? I mean, I always need pizza. Okay. So just with a <laughs> <laughs> the look of disappointment on your face. Uh, no, you just leave the fucking puns to me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, mix it up in the bowl. Um, the consistency is a bit weird, but then, like when you lay it out and you you kind of spread it out, you can't pull it and push it like you would with a normal pizza dough. You have to kind of like... It's not dough. No. No. But it's less of a batter than the other kind of pizza recipe, uh, yeah. gluten-free pizza ones I've, I've used. Like, it will actually slide on and off of the... Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I saw some some slide fails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was Ben. And it was oh, Ben. Brilliant. But yeah, no, that was uh, really nice and we should be doing a load more of that. Also, I... I've had a massive tidy up. In the, I say massive tidy up. I had a big tidy up in the house. Um, a load of stuff that's been just hanging around. <laughs> the look on Joe's face. Is <laughs> uh, yeah. Have yeah. you? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there was like a few piles that had just been kicking around for a few months where it's just stuff that needs putting away and sorting out and getting rid of. A lot of it has been uh, like stuff that I need to take to the dump or whatever, but because we've not been able to like they, everything's been locked down we've not been able to take stuff out so it's just been sat around and then other stuff has been piled on top of that so it was good to kind of get all of that sorted out and whilst i was doing it found not only my driving license from when i was 17 and the photo on that is fucking hilarious. i'll show you later <laughs> please do. fucking hilarious but i also found the old 35 mil film cameras that i have uh so i've got two Olympus OM10s and a Pentax P30, I think it is, as well as an old... Good luck record. never being able to find any film for them. I've got a bit of film. <laughs> it's like one roll of 400. <laughs> and, uh, Bitcoin, that dude. <laughs> uh, and I've also got an old um, 620 format camera, which I am pretty confident is never going to work. But yeah, it's quite nice because you, you, know, you, you guys have both been doing quite a lot of uh, restoration stuff recently. Brett, with the Rusty stuff, Al with the uh, electronic stuff. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> rusty stuff. Oh, shit. Yeah. No, rusty stuff as well now. But like with the electronics and that. So, yeah, I think in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be mucking around trying to get the cameras back working. And I've been talking to um, a friend called Steg, who is fucking glorious. But we've basically both been getting super excited about old cameras and uh, the prospect of getting these working, taking some shots. And like setting up dark rooms and stuff like that, so it's really nice to kind of get back into that that world again because I really miss shooting photographs anyway. Um, other than like a quick one on my phone where I'm out sort of thing, I I, I miss that kind of taking a day or a, a couple of hours and going for a, a specific trip mm-hmm. to take photos. And the idea of being able to do it on a film camera again is really exciting. Although I'm not not sure how successful the first few trips are going to be because it's been a very long time since I've shot on film and I've. I've learned to rely on uh, the electronics in a, a digital camera a bit too much. So I'm looking forward to getting out and, and doing some stuff with that again. That should be good fun. I did a trip last year with a couple of friends who um, 
one of whom is a, a film photographer, so he yeah. takes pictures with proper old school cameras. And uh, we did a, a whole camping trip to the Brecon Beacons, kind of in between lockdowns, for the sole purpose of taking pictures. Mm. And Flying Penny found and found some awesome caves. Yeah, uh, and it was great fun. Yeah, and actually, to be fair, one of the other things I found when I was hunting through everything is all my uh, all my camping stuff as well. So the idea is I'm hopefully going to be able to do a bit of camping this year and take some good photos. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And actually saying that, because I'm not doing... So when I did photography uh, in school, it was, we like processed all the stuff ourselves. Um, so I only ever shot on black and white. So I never had the chance to shoot uh, color film, well, other than like disposable cameras and shit like that. Um, I never had the sh chance to shoot color film and to process color film myself. Um, so that's a whole world and processing that i want to get into at some point as well but i think i'll probably start off with that that bit of film there is black and white so i'll probably shoot on that and then just buy a couple of rolls of normal color film shoot with them and see what it turns out like get them uh processed uh by a professional and probably for now i'll probably just scan the negatives and maybe manipulate them in photoshop and play around with them in there but mm -hmm. it's good to kind of get a, a darkroom set up somewhere even if it's just a tent in this room sort of thing because yeah because you can get them now and they're really fucking cool like it's literally just like a little stand-up tent that you just put in your house like those little camping toilets yes yeah, yeah like exactly. a really small tent but they're really tall and yeah. you know they're coming out of a massive dump yeah it's the same stuff <laughs> it really oh. is yeah and uh, that's all we've got time for this week. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 me. We don't really have a, a, a topic this week. We were just going to shoot the shit a little bit. So I, I'm now... Autographic feces uh, pun there, Steve. You didn't even realise you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very true, actually. Al, Al, quick, what was the movie with Robin Williams where he developed film? One hour photo. Yeah. Uh, got it. All right. Nice. Joe, I want... I want to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning just introducing the audience to Mr. Joe Garnett because you were on did we have him on like he was he was involved he was involved in the very first Fool Fly round table that we had a couple of years ago. Um, Joe sat at the end of the table and then joined us in our songery. However, during the majority of it I was told to shut the fuck up and do not speak. <laughs> Which was fair, because at the time I had absolutely no idea what was going on. I didn't. I, I think at that point I hadn't even listened to any podcasts at all. At all. Oh yeah, because you actually. You, yeah. So I I also said to Joe that he's not allowed on the podcast until he's listened to the podcast. So he just went off and listened to two episodes back to back. Then uh, one of which was one with Laura on, which is a good one, and then the other was just us three, which obviously is bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. So Joe, I know. Uh, you could have a very long story because you're you're the most interesting man in the world, but you also haven't been on the planet for very long, so it can't be can't be that big of a story. But can you give us like a little bit? Of, <laughs> can you give us a little bit of a background of of kind of where you came up and what got you eventually to uh, the forge? Yeah, I can. So I am 24 years old, 25 this year. I started blacksmithing through knife making initially that kind of original story i hated school i mean that was nothing to do with the school i was just a bit of an idiot and <laughs> uh, i 
I just I was very polite to everyone, but I never did any work. Um, <laughs> so I kind of got on in school, but didn't get on in school. I uh, went through sixth form, did all that again in the subjects that interested me, did all right. And then the boring stuff, I just didn't try. So I didn't do mm -hmm. very well at all. And then made the decision not to go to university because it would have been a complete waste of time for me. Um, so instead, I found a Bushcraft Instructors Award. Uh, I've been I've done bushcraft and wilderness skills all the way through my life. It's been one of the constant themes, really. So I found a Bushcraft Instructors Award at the Woodcraft School where you spend five days every month for 10 months living in the woods, learning bushcraft and learning how to teach it. And through that, obviously, you're using knives, axes, all sorts of tools. And at this point, I started to put handles on knives, buying blades, then started to make my own blades as well, just cutting them out bits of steel, and I wanted to move forward into forging them. At the time, I was working as a judo instructor. So the... Uh, like you do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was a bit, you know, I didn't really enjoy the job very much. Looking back on it now, it taught me a few things, but I didn't realize it at the time. And during that year where I was teaching judo, doing the bushcraft, I was having a bit of a what on earth do I want to do with my life kind of thing. And I rang up a local blacksmith for some advice about buying an anvil initially. And we chatted for five minutes and he offered me a job. So um, I was very, very lucky. That was David at Cobalt Blacksmiths. And um, I just started there one day a week. I had the afternoon or most of the day off after an early morning class. Um, so I'd then go to the forge and work with David and at the end of that academic year, I quit teaching judo and went into full-time blacksmithing. And that kind of never stopped, really. Mm. And then after a time, I met Alex at the festival, Alex Pohl, and started working for him then and started two days a week, kind of commuting back and forth from Somerset to Oxfordshire because that was a sensible thing to do. <laughs> uh, and then slowly just moved more and more into Somerset. So I just want to pause on that for a second because Joe just kind of glossed over that. Whilst he was commuting back and forth, he stayed down in in a, a camp of a, a caravan that we had. Yeah. The, the camper van was in bits and it was damp, it leaked. And this was during winter. And quite often there would be like, it, it would be snowing, fucking frosting. And oh, he nearly passed out once yeah. because the outside shower, the, the shower was outside. Right. Yeah. Do you want to do that? Yeah, yeah. So it was a leaky caravan and I shared it with some mice. Um, got to know them quite well. It's kind of one of those things where you wake up in the middle of the night. You're not quite sure whether you're awake or not. And you also don't know if that's a mouse running over your duvet or not. Um, <laughs> and then the, the shower was outside. Uh, so when we had people come down from courses, there was a shower available. Um, and it was heated. The water was heated by a small gas flame, which is great. Unless there was a breeze. Yeah. And if there was a <laughs> breeze, that little flame would just get blown out. You'd end up having a cold shower. And in the winter, it got really cold. And uh, I just had a cold shower. There was a really strong wind. And I was walking back to the caravan and nearly passed out because it was extraordinarily cold. <laughs> and Steve, in those two years, with my saving grace, because every time I just got fed up, I just go, Steve, can I come over to your house? <laughs> <laughs> I'll come over to Steve's house, have a cup of tea, he'd warm me up, give me dinner and then send me packing. Yeah. <laughs> when did you start really getting into, say, not just camping, setting up a tent and camping, but more of the bushcrafting and I don't know, foraging and all the all the knowledge that you gained. Did that only come out of the classes or did you start that kind of before? I think an interest 
in bushcraft will follow on for pretty much anyone who spends enough time in the outdoors. And bushcraft is is a an umbrella term that describes so many different pools of knowledge, if you like. You've got natural history, you've got tracking and training, you've got woodcraft. There's so many subjects underneath the term bushcraft that it almost does it a disservice to describe it as that. But I think it was from when I was a kid. My parents never bought me a games console, which I look back now and thank them for that. But they just kicked me outside. So I spent I spent most of my childhood outside. And then they sent me on loads of courses when I was a kid. I think they just wanted to get rid of me, to be honest, for a day or a weekend. And, and there was a, re- a local company who used to run outdoor courses and I'll go down there and just spend the weekend in the woods learning how to light fires and you know and then uh, that continued all the way through school it was my little escape from school really going and living in the woods yeah it's Uh, it's really weird when when you put it like that Joe it just sounds exactly like my childhood but when you say bushcraft it sounds like some sort of qualified like really sophisticated (laughs) thing where you know what you're doing like I was just rolling around in mud and like making well, shit out of sticks well, and thing, <laughs> living I mean, in the forest because my parents yeah. hated me as well but i, I never i never Ow, applied I like a yeah i, I was kind of laughing because like i i had a similar sort of upbringing except they, my parents wouldn't send me off to to classes they just send me outside on the farm and lighting fires like joe joe can light fires with fucking a toothpick and a leaf whereas like my idea of lighting fires when I was growing up was how much petrol can I steal before dad will notice? <laughs> and to be fair, that's kind of how Al lights fires now. Yeah, we, kind of, we kind of went down different routes, didn't we? Yeah. White like spirit that. when he's not drinking it anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, th- I saw a lot of Ray Mears programs and I think he is a fantastic figurehead mm. for bushcraft. I think my favorite saying of his is the moment you proclaim yourself an expert, you stop learning. And when I'd got to the age of 18 and I was looking at these different courses, I was kind of looking around and going, well, I already know a lot about bushcraft. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll just go on this as a bit of a gander. And then I got there and realized I knew sweet fuck all. Yeah. And actually, Al, it is a qualification. It's uh, the courses that I did were first year degree level. They're certified by the NCFE and they were level four NCFE courses. What's NCFE? National, I think it's Northern College for Further Education. Yeah. And I did a few courses in uh, track and sign and in the bushcraft. And and then that kind of ran hand in hand with the blacksmithing and the knife making really well, because once you have an understanding of how to use the tools, you're in a far better position when it comes to making them. Mm. Mm-hmm. When it comes See, to making what? Damascus arrowheads, just to, just to show exactly. off how fucking yeah, good you are. they were in fairness made out of chainsaw chains. <laughs> <laughs> but you are quite right. Um, what made you get into the um, dog sledding? You were running dogs for a while, wow. right? Do you still do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Every so this year being an exception because of COVID, every month or not every month, every year, every year for a month. February, March time, I would go out to Norway uh, and work with huskies, work with sled dogs. For my 21st birthday, actually, I went out to Norway and it's in a, it's 20 minutes outside a town called Alta, which is really fucking cold and really far north, really far (laughs) north, above Sweden. Like you think of Sweden as being a cold Arctic country, but you have the top of Sweden and Norway goes over the top and Alta is right kind of on the north. West coast, if you like. Average winter temperatures of about minus 20. And I went there on a five-day trip. And 
Absolutely loved it. Just completely fell in love with it. I love the outdoors. I love dogs. It was a perfect combination. And we did the five day trip across the, uh, across the plateau, through the mountains, going from cabin to cabin. And then at the end of the five days, we got back and they asked if I wanted to come back the next year to help train the puppies. So, of course, I said, well, you know, if, if I'm asked. <laughs> and since then, uh, I've just kept going back. Ended up kind of being <laughs> one of the family over there a little bit. The place is called Trasti Otrina. Um, it's run by Yoni Trasti, who is an incredible chef. He's the guy that ordered the mushroom spikes. He's the guy who ordered the mushroom spikes. <laughs> He's an amazing chef. And then his wife, Trina Lyric, um, runs the dog sledding side of the house. And it's... So a... after, sorry, after, after three years of this podcast and 172 episodes, this is the first time that anything Scandinavian has been even remotely closely to being properly pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> I sincerely hope they don't listen to it. Yeah. their names, but... <laughs> It's all right. I call Terry a Terry. Terry or Terry. Yeah, Terry. <laughs> but if if you ever get the chance to go out and work with Huskies, do it because it is one of the most incredible experiences of my life, and I will continue to do it for as long as I can. And two of the dogs who are retiring are meant to be coming back to England. One is going to live with me, and one is going to live with my girlfriend's family. Um, two of the retiring Huskies and. We meant to bring them back last year, obviously couldn't. So fingers crossed for this year. Yeah, we might have to do a, like a, just a fucking long ass road trip one day, yeah. which would be amazing. Um, and yeah, just to kind of point that out as well. Sorry, anyone that was uh, hoping because if anybody's seen the thumbnail, which I'm sure I will have uh, Joe's face front and center. Joe is not single anymore, I'm afraid. So he's taken. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry to get your hopes up folks but yeah uh Al, you, you raise your hand yes i was gonna um ask joe on the back of kind of your your qualifications in bushcraft um do you, <laughs> what are, your do you are you planning on running classes how would people come and learn from you how do you share those skills and where well, my, is my... The, the platform obviously terrible global situation aside <laughs> The first thing I would say is, yes, I have qualifications, but there are people who don't have qualifications who whose knowledge far outstrips mm. mine. And there are some incredible people out there, and I'll never claim to be as proficient as them. Uh, with regard to courses, I worked for the last few years with a company called the Woodcraft School, um, working with Phil Brook, who uh, Long bows. is a full-time yeah. bowyer. Yeah, absolute legend. Really cool guy. Um, I was working for John Ryder at the Woodcraft School, which was a fantastic opportunity because he is one of the foremost instructors in the UK. His knowledge base is absolutely outstanding and he's passed that all on to Phil and Phil's done so much work himself as well. He's two absolutely incredible blokes and I was extremely lucky to be able to work with them. I don't feel qualified to run courses myself and I don't have the okay. facility down here to do so. Um, I was at one festival at the Good Life a few years ago, the Good Life experience. The lady running the festival came over to us because there was a guy who was meant to be running a fire making demonstration. Okay. And she was in an absolute panic because he just hadn't turned up. She was like, you guys work with fire. Do you, do you, can you guys help me? So I, I got roped into, into a workshop entitled Building the Perfect Fire. And I did it and finished it. And Al came over to watch and he said, Joe, that was really good. 
But next time, just lay off the Latin, all right? It's called the granny knot. It's the only deciduous conifer. It's Latin, it's Arab decidua, you know? Yeah. It's there weeping with boredom. Yeah. Joe's, like, he's referred to within the workshop as the external hard drive because he just retains information. And it's great because, like, Alex and me are quite similar in that we know stuff. We just can't necessarily recall it straight away. <laughs> so, so we'll be going the thing with stuff. The what, what, what's it called? Uh, Joe, what's that thing you use for the stuff? And he just comes out and blurts out. Or like you ask him like the 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 temperature to heat treat a particular steel out or something like that, and it's just bang, it's there straight away. If he's uh, like a, an external hard drive, you and Al are like the, the Dewey decimal system where you have to get like a little drawer, <laughs> pull it out and, and rifle through, <laughs> through the cards. To, B, right? <laughs> I'll start with B. I don't think they've got past Morse code, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, I'm probably more kind of like just a pile of notes scattered around in a room somewhere. <laughs> but it's there. It's just not particularly easy to access it all. <laughs> the light's off. Yeah. <laughs> well, I for one, Joe, qualifications or not, and regardless of how talented other people, I would love to have you teach me some bushcraft at some point. Um, be be it in a professional or unprofessional capacity. I, I vote unprofessional. <laughs> I vote it unprofessional, and I vote that Steve comes as well, so I can use the word yes. cunt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I've done quite a few unprofessional courses just with friends. I've got a lot of friends who have got an interest in it. And just going out into the woods with a bunch of mates and having a good time. There's nothing like sitting around a fire with a big slab of meat on top of the fire. Sorry, vegans, there's a lawn out there. You can go and eat that. Um, <laughs> sitting around a fire and shooting the shit because it there's nothing like it and then yeah. going and sleeping in the woods sleeping in the woods for the first time is probably one of the scariest things you can do um but once you get used to it it's wonderful there's However, beavers back in the uk now yeah you gotta watch out for them little fuckers oh it's in the animals okay um <laughs> we'll be getting cougars back soon too yeah uh there was one time and slags for years i was <laughs> I was camping out with my my mate Sam and uh, we had just settled down, turned the torches off and we were just drifting off to sleep. And then there was a sound and it sounded like someone was sprinting towards us through the leaf litter. We just shat ourselves. You we jumped up, grabbed the torch. We thought there was someone coming to murder us. Shining the torches. There's, there's, there's just three badgers snuffling around in the leaf litter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I think badgers are possibly the thing that I'm scared of most in the... Uh... UK ecosystem at the moment because um, they're vicious fuckers. Oh, I love them. This I is going to be they're scary as shit. <laughs> this is going to be a really interesting year though because I admittedly want to join in on this Fools with Tools plus Joe bushcrafting session <laughs> that we can all go on. But it's such a different environment out here that I will be working on the house and on the property, and I already know based on last year being over there that. I'll be dealing with scorpions, tarantulas, possibly the occasional rattlesnake. I know there's gopher snakes and things that are harmless out here, but there's it's such a different ecosystem than anything I've grown up around. And even in my time in Vegas with the occasional scorpion being in the house, it wasn't really that much of a bother. I, I know there's going to be some nights where I just sleep at the end of a long day and then wake up to whatever 
interesting critter wants to creep through uh, my property or hopefully not inside. I feel like I have to do a really good job early on yeah. barricading everything and making sure that I don't wake up to, you know, a scorpion stinging my foot. The worst thing we have in the UK is ticks, probably. Yeah. Uh, ticks are bloody horrible. <laughs> Reminds me of a, a friend of mine who was in the army uh, and he was on tour in Iraq. And he was asleep in his cot. They had this big bunkhouse. And he woke up to his face being eaten by a camel spider. Yeah. I mean, absolutely horrific. You've got this massive camel spider. He woke up and it was laying eggs in his lip. So the first thing they do, they bite you and then inject it like a anesthetic. anesthetic so you can't feel it. And it just started laying eggs in his lip. And he had to go on antibiotics for a week. But... Oh my god! I just yeah, can't imagine that. I'm that's... really glad we don't have camel spiders in the UK. Yeah, and I I am now going to have nightmares for the rest of the week. Thanks. <laughs> so the best bit, there's a camel spider running out of the bunkhouse, and there's just a load of really hard soldiers in yeah. in Iraq just running around like little girls spraying fire out of the ocean cans <laughs> at it. Because we all know that's the best way to get rid of camel spiders: flamethrowers, improvised flamethrowers. <laughs> I'm still hoping that I see my little gecko friend. I don't know how long they live, but did oh, you know yeah. there were desert geckos out here? Yeah. I found a, a white and black stripy boy in my shop right after I finished it last year, and then he never came back. And I, I can only assume it's because I've been make, making too much noise or <laughs> it's too hot in there or something. I have no idea. But he was very small, and I want a shop gecko. But I, I know I have <laughs> Gary's on the property. I know I have Gary's on the property because I've seen them. And then moving some of the wood and refuse around, uh, I've seen little piles of peanuts where I've tossed them out into the yard, and then I find these little, you know, caches of, of peanuts and things that have thrown out. You'll you'll probably find that gecko on the Nature Is Metal page getting absolutely smashed by an animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think like the the idea of like the bushcrafty stuff is is quite a, a nice one because it's like Joe said, like knowing how to use the tools um like from our point of view uh is really good because it means you you have a better understanding when you're trying to make them but also like that going back to to basics thing i think like that echoes quite nicely in the maker world of like um a lot of people using hand tools and going for simple stuff like we we've um we've done a little bit of uh like spoon carving and stuff like that um and it's quite nice to be able to just kind of have like a little sloid or something like that and just sit around a campfire with a, a bit of wood and just whittle away and i think that's like there there is a lot of um overlap between like the bushcrafty sort of side of things and um and the maker world and it's quite uh it's quite nice being able to kind of see both sides of it um, i think definitely with like the 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 fire cooking trend that obviously you guys are really taking advantage of um, and john you, you know you, you talked about just throwing a bit of meat on the fire but i think that there's something just so simple and and, and sort of honest and humble about just simple things like that just really really down to earth yeah um not messing around with stuff too much like i, I um when i stopped down at the uh, the gloucester services it's like one of the best bunch butchers in england at yeah. a service station which is so bizarre really? um and i just picked up like a, a, like a saddle of lamb and uh, some beef short rib and, and just like slow cooked them on the fire yesterday like all day 
and that, that was it. Didn't have anything with it. Didn't have any bread or potatoes yeah. or sauces or anything. It was just the the fire and the meat. Yeah. And, and just that that really simple, just lo- like cooked on wood as well. So I didn't use the charcoal. Um, and it's just like, there's something so simple about it. I was going to say, because like one of the best uh, meals I think I've ever had was at uh, Port Elliot that year when we did the um, the venison. It was basically just a couple of haunches of venison. One of them mm. was literally just hanging uh, above a fire um, and just cooked over a bit of time. And the other was cut up into big chunks and it was just you cooked in one of our pans with, I think it was just butter and some random herbs. That <laughs> so whatever you can get. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was just a case of just, oh, it was so fucking delicious. It was because it was yeah. so simple. And it was just that. Um, and we had people like basically bartering with us and bringing bottles of red wine in exchange for a <laughs> and meat. And it was brilliant. I think the best lesson I've ever learned has come from fire making because um, one of the things that we spent a lot of time on on the instructor's award was fire by friction, uh, or as I coined it, fire by frustration. Um, <laughs> And it's essentially using, it's, it's rubbing two sticks together as you can get. And the particular technique we were looking at was bow drill, uh, where you have the mechanical advantage of a bow wrapped around a spindle. And then you have a bearing block on the top, your half board at the bottom. And uh, you use the bow to spin the spindle. And that creates an ember down at the bottom of your half board. And if you've not done it before, it's quite difficult yeah. <laughs> and getting it getting it right from the wood selection to to the carving the set to and on this course we the test was we had to go out source materials make the and make fire all within three hours no normally three hours is absolutely fine you can do it in three hours easy but as soon as that someone puts that time pressure there yeah you've got that mental thing of right now i've got to do it um and the best lesson i ever learned with that is just focus on the process because all i was focused on was getting the ember get the ember get it in a tinder bundle blow into flame and you're concentrating so hard on getting this ember yeah that nothing goes right and you just can't do it and then as soon as you stop focusing on the ember and you just focus on the process you get good technique you concentrate on that really nice technique you get your kit perfect sort out all those little niggles, spend the time, carve that, that notch a little bit bigger, and you just focus on the process. And before you know it, you've got an ember. And then you take that, you put it in cinderbone, you blow it in flame, and you're done yeah. within an hour. But as soon as you stop focusing on the end result and you just focus on the process, you get really good results. Yeah. I think it's the best lesson I've ever learned for anything. No, that's I mean, a really good shout. That, that probably translates to a lot of things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so much. Um, yeah, I mean, like the the idea of putting that that time pressure on, I think like it, it, it um, translates so well to 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 making stuff, to, to cooking, to to anything. Like it's like how fucking easy is it to to cook a meal? But then as soon as you put that pressure of like, oh, everything's got to be ready exactly at the same time. Like that's that's why I fucking hated the idea of working in a commercial kitchen as a cook because all of a sudden it was like, oh shit, I've got to make the same thing repeatedly and I've got to do it under a time pressure and oh, no, I can't do it. But if I've got a bunch of friends to come ra- like coming around, I quite happily cook for like 20 people, but I I can't do it in a place where I'm being judged on everything coming out at the right time sort of thing because it's, it's that sudden pressure. Um, 
I was going to quickly say, like a complete shameless self plug. But if anybody is um, interested in the the whole idea of, uh, of uh, fire, I was going to say fire making, fire starting, um, then in the the Hudson Bay Axe video that we did on the Forge channel, um, we actually finished that off with Joe uh, lighting a fire using a, a tinder bundle and using a, a flint and steel. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's probably like if you have any interest and you want to see just how handsome Joe is, um, then yeah, that video is not a bad shot. That, that might have been my favorite part of that video. Oh, it's fucking Aww, gorgeous. Bless you. Yeah, it was. It was shot very well, and it was just, it was, let me <clears throat> inject this into the conversation. Joe, explain to me this. Why is bushcrafting one of those things where, at least in America, it's gone from my understanding, which is like appreciating being in nature and making a fire from two bits of wood, to here's the thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear and fire starters and hatchets <laughs> and, and EDC tools and stuff. Like what, what happened? And is that just a thing that comes out of people? I've got the latest bushcrafting tools. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, yeah, I hope everyone's got some popcorn. or. Like, dude, this is what I was ready for. I need because to know why. Are cunts. <laughs> cunts. They can't be asked to get their fat, soggy ass off the sofa and into the woods. So what they do, they go online and they buy another fucking knife. <laughs> now, I'm not complaining about people buying knives, especially- Knives are available at alexpaulaiwork.com. <laughs> <laughs> However, bushcraft is not about kit. Kit does nothing but weigh you down. It can be extremely useful and you'd get fucking loads of weekend warriors who go, oh, I've just got this latest knife. It's made out of CPM3V steel. No one gives a fuck. The best knife you have is the one that you have when you yeah. need it. And if it's shit, it's still better than any other knife because you don't really have them to hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, a five-pound Mora is way better than a 600-pound fucking custom-made knife that you've left at home. And if anyone mm -hmm. is looking to get into bushcraft, go and buy a Mora. Yeah. Because you will trash it. And it doesn't matter because it costs a tenner. So go and buy a Mora. However, bushcraft is not about kit. It's not about tools. It's tools help you in bushcraft, but knowledge doesn't weigh anything. And that is what you need to carry around with you. Like you can have the best knife, but unless you know how to use it, it's not going to do anything for you. You can have a Gucci tarp. You can have a Gucci hammock. But if you don't, if you, if you pitch it under a tree that's got some deadfall or a widow maker, you're gonna die. Like it's just yeah. that simple. You have to have the knowledge of how to use the kit before you. Yeah, but it. you'll you'll die in style. <laughs> you know, it's fine in the UK. In the UK, it's pretty warm. It's pretty dry. There aren't any dangerous animals. But if you go somewhere Except north, apart from badgers, then, <laughs> and ticks. Yeah. <laughs> if you go abroad, you go to Northern Scandinavia, you go to parts of Africa, you go to parts of the States, you go to Alaska, you go to Canada. If you don't have the knowledge and you rock up with a truckload of kit, you will die. You'll get jacked by a bear. <laughs> and in fact, a $600 knife isn't going to save you then. Yeah. It's when it gets taken to this, this higher degree and it happens in the maker world all the time, right? 
what knife chef's knife do you want? How, how expensive is the chef's knife that you want to own and put in your kitchen yeah. knowing that you can't take an avocado apart without cutting your hand open. Right. Because you like, you never learned how to do the basics. So yeah. yes, I think in this little group that we've got here and the majority of our listeners, it's all a bunch of people that appreciate the old ways of doing things or appreciate the learn the skills so that, so that you can get better at the skills and then you can break the rules as you see fit, you know, or that fit you. But this cultural or social media impact or whatever has happened, and I'm speaking specifically about bushcrafting, these conversations where I just, I could not follow why somebody was spending X amount of dollars on this thing when I knew they couldn't even boil water. It's it's not necessarily about old ways as such, it's just about basics. Um, because there are plenty of, of modern techniques that are perfectly valid and valuable and better than old ways, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. But like you say, it's, it's about learning those absolute basics before you go off and, and play with all the new gear. It's, it's like you know, if, if someone that wants to get into knife making, for example, because we've been talking about that, um, you know, rather than going and buying a, a knife kit and learning how to assemble it themselves and maybe tweaking it a little bit from that, yeah, you know, they go off and the first thing they do is buy a, a coal iron forge, forging press so they can make their own San Mai or Damascus or whatever. And they don't actually know how to, to do the basics. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's something that happens a lot. And I think, again, with the, the bushcrafting stuff, like people want to go off and they want to they be able to light a fire using a, a bow drill or two sticks. But even if they've got a, a fire lit, they don't know how to stack the wood to, to burn efficiently or be able to <laughs> cook on or like that there's a few things i want to talk about <laughs> of course there are fuck me i can talk for england um this is why lunch times at the forge takes so long yeah uh first off the best lesson i was ever taught about knives and buying expensive kit and stuff like that i was on a course with a guy called paul curtley and one of his instructors oh, yeah. uh i i saw that he had a particular knife and i was a geek i knew exactly what that knife was and i went up to him and i said uh what what knife do you have and he just glanced at it and went, a knife? <laughs> it, because it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what knife it is, so long as it's sharp and it works. It's fine. And I think the whole thing with bushcraft and kind of a theme in the world at the moment in general is the immediate gratification. People don't want to invest the, the years and the decades it takes to develop the knowledge to be able to go out and use these skills in the direst of situations. They just want to be able to buy a knife and call themselves a bushcrafter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, want, they want to be able to look at a quick YouTube video and go, oh, yeah, I know how to do that now. But never actually do it. But like, oh, yeah, I've, I've watched a video on making a, a fire. Exactly. I can make a fire. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a guy called, again, Paul Kirtley. Um, he puts videos on YouTube and he had a, a video up where he was teaching clients how to light a fire with twig bundles. Um, where you have two bundles of twigs, you light your tinder underneath and then you use these bundles um, you hold them in your hands so you can control the airflow and you lay them down and it's your first matchstick thin fuel for your fire before you start putting larger pieces of firewood on. And he got absolutely slated because he used massive twig bundles and had a huge, great roaring fire that was really tall. And he got slated for people saying, why do you need such a big fire in the summer in England? And his point was, I don't know where the people I'm teaching are going to be using these skills. Yeah. On a nice hot day in England in the summer, lighting a fire is relatively easy. 
but he doesn't know where those people are going to go and use their skills. They might be in an absolutely dire situation, need to get a fire going. And unless you have that amount of dry firewood, you are not going to get your fire going. And it's, as you know, going back to what Steve was saying about the different types of fires, it's one of those, it's again, one of those things that people have a surface level knowledge about. And you, you can know a lot of, uh, you can know very little about a lot of things and come across as being very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. But what I think is more valuable is knowing a lot about very few things because, oh, not necessarily more valuable, but yeah. it certainly has its place. It's the whole jack of all trades, master of none and all of that malarkey. Yeah. But I mean, like with, with fires as well, like it's it, one of the things that always makes me laugh is people get very um, geeky and very like, oh, yeah, I can light a fire with two sticks. But one of the instructors said, oh, yeah, but, well, how do you light a fire? And pulls out a, a light and was like, I, I use this. What happens if you do? Yeah, if you lose it or it runs out of fuel, why is this one? Like, <laughs> like the guy carried like five lighters on him because it's so much easier to use a lighter than it is to rub two sticks together. And it's valuable to have those skills, and it's good to under like have that that base level understanding of um, the mechanics of it all. But that doesn't mean that you have to go through every fire lighting experience like it's a fucking chore. Sometimes mm. you can just go you know what, I'm going to chuck a load of white spirit on it and I'm going to light it with a lighter because that's all I need to do. I just need to get the fire lit. I don't need to to prove anything or to show anyone up. I just need to get this thing lit. Um, just, going, just going back to, to Ray Mears, Joe, and I just remember some. he had a very similar approach. It was just like, well, I'll just carry like a 9-volt battery and some like wire yeah. wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, if my hands are freezing cold and there's no dry firewood, I'm fucked, so I'll just use this. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Well, it's, it, you can buy bow drill kits on Amazon, mm-hmm. on eBay. You can buy bow drill kits, yeah, um, which, you know, I have two views on. One, if you want to get loads of practice, then fine. But half, at least half of bow drill is knowing how to make a good kit, mm-hmm. knowing how to make the spindle, knowing how to make the bearing block, knowing how to make the half, knowing how to select a good bow. And again, the best lesson I learned with bow drill was once you've made the kit and you've lit your fire, put that kit on the fire and burn it (laughs) because it will then force you to make another one It's the only way you will then make another one is if you burn your previous one right you'll just get better it's repeating those skills over and over and over again once you've made it it. it's done it's used make another one we get better we we definitely got raised uh my uncle was really into orienteering and i think before bushcrafting was a term that i knew anything about he he was a bushcrafter but a lot more on like hiking to get lost on purpose and then finding his way back either by the stars if he could see them or you know the orienteering he had a knife that i remember him having the entire time i knew him growing up he always had this knife in a sheath on his hip i'd always see him sharpening it but i've i've had one i have one in my camping kit like at all times now I yeah. don't know that I've ever used it, but I know it's there. But it's, it's the perfect example. You said he had one knife that you saw him wear the whole time. Yeah, he yeah. had one knife. Yeah, You don't need seven, eight, <laughs> nine, ten. <laughs> yeah. He had one knife because that's all you need. And you just learn how to sharpen it and how to look after it. And also the ferro rod, I'm not being funny, is probably the most reliable method of starting a fire nowadays. It works when it's wet. Yeah, you can still produce 3000 degree sparks in the rain or if it's been in a lake 
it works every time and you only need yeah. a battery knife to strike it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It can light pretty much anything that a lighter can. Yeah. Because it burns so hot is fantastic. I mean, like I, I just, as Brett was saying, I pulled out my, I've got uh, the Leatherman Signal, um, which I, you know, it was a gift when we were at the 10 Makers thing and that stays in my pocket almost all, at all times. Um, and yeah, that, that furrow rod, it's, it's been soaked. It's been covered in oil. It's had all sorts of things done to it, but it still works now. And I mean, Grant, I think I've used it to light a fire maybe once. Um, and most often it gets used to just go, ah, look at this making sparks. Um, but like, it's, yeah, it's so reliable. And mm. so you, you just use the back of the knife and, and that's yeah. it. Um, <laughs> to be fair, they, we, we had the conversation a few times in, in the workshop. Like if, you know, the world's ending and you only have time to grab one bit of kit when you're leaving the house. Like what, what would you grab? And I mean, for us, Joe. yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always kind of like, well, you know, we've got an ax and with an ax, we can do pretty much anything. Yeah. And, and it will change depending on where you are in the world. If yeah. you're, if you're in the jungle, the one tool you'll have is a machete. And yeah. People who are native to that area can do literally everything with just a machete. And they're happy with a machete that costs five quid from Walmart or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, or if you're in the boreal forest, that one tool will be a big forest axe because yeah. with that you can do everything. And it, de depending on your environment, your your tool will yeah. change as well. Yeah. And and I think it all comes back to, again, what, what Joe was saying at, at the beginning. Um, knowledge is the most important, useful thing. Um, and you... Know, you with with that knowledge you can use any tool for its intended purpose or not for its in intended purpose i mean anyone that listens to the show knows that we're quite good at using tools for unintended purposes um <laughs> al in particular um and i wouldn't necessarily that necessarily say that al has the correct knowledge to use that tool incorrectly but he has some sort of knowledge on some things uh, <laughs> he, he definitely knows that's a great damn fine beard he even that. does um, but yeah, and I, like I say, I think knowledge is a, is a really undervalued thing, um, which sounds ridiculous because we're all in the business of learning more skills. But yeah, knowledge is, like you say, I think saying that it, it in terms of weight, it weighs nothing, but it can save your life. Yeah. Um, and knowing and understanding that is spiffing. Oh, that was smooth. Yeah. Al, have you got someone? Yeah. Have you got an order? Yes, jabs. 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 Which means, Joe, you are first. Woo! Uh, my spiffy <laughs> for today is Jimmy Coleman. Uh, on Instagram, he is wolf underscore and underscore bison. He is the newest member of the Forge team. Hey. Uh, he works with us full-time now. He's not only a competent, very competent blacksmith, but he's also a bloody brilliant artist. He is very good. For Christmas, Steve, Al, and I were lucky enough to receive a piece of his art. And my God, he is yeah. good. <laughs> he does some absolutely stunning paintings. Again, that is Wolf underscore and underscore Bison. Yep. Go and have a look because he is awesome. Yeah. I mean, the other thing with Jimmy as well is... When Jimmy joined the uh, the the team, he was quite reserved and quite quiet. He's still 
quite reserved and quite quiet. But every now and then he'll just come out with something absolutely brilliant and little things like it, this is why he fits in so well with the team. Like I came out of the the, the toilet in the forge the other day, uh, which now just so happens like as you walk out of the, the toilet, there's the polishing stations there with the, the grinders and like ACDC or something was playing along. And it was just the fact that as soon as he heard the door open, he just instantly started like giving me a little bit of a bum wiggle in time in the music as he was like really like overacting polishing the thing and he's very yeah. very quiet but when he says something it's usually hilarious yeah he's fucking ace so yeah go go give jimmy a follow i think i've shouted him out before but go and give jimmy some love yeah he deserves some love al you are next for job yes um i would like to spiff a youtube channel called the skid factory um now Special mention to the good old chip Jim, because uh, he recommended this to me, knowing that I would love it. Um, and the Skid Factory is uh, a couple of Aussie blokes um, in their <laughs> in their garage, basically putting massive engines in shit boxes, and that's yeah. the whole channel. <laughs> and, it, and it and it's amazing. Uh, yeah. And they they just do like old like Hiluxes and what what I've gathered is australian versions of all your favorite classic shitbox yeah. cars so just like brett any massive like family saloon car or station <laughs> wagon there will be like an australian equivalent with a, an engine twice as big for some reason um and it's all just like really sort of mechanical mechanics for want of a better yeah. term um, and yeah. you know like 70s and 80s cars that just yeah. are just all like spanner work just fabricating massive exhausts and putting superchargers yeah. on stuff, and it's just hilarious. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the, the shop is called Al, and he's just really grumpy, and he's great. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to say, like, I have a bit of a problem with shows like that at the moment because I've been watching too many of them. And yeah, it's really I, addictive. I The thing is, I, I'll try and put it on in the background, is because uh, who's the guy that you shouted out a little while back that just the British bloke that just films? Oh, the Salvage Rebuilds. That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've put a couple of his on thinking, like, I'll put that on whilst I'm doing something else yeah. and just end up not doing anything for two hours because I end up just sucked in watching that. Um, so, yeah, thanks for giving me something else that I was going to make really <laughs> like, There's a whole just, like, lexicon of terms as well. Like, it's all... Um... They've got catchphrases and stuff. It's just so it, yeah. it's 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 borderline a real TV show. Yeah, you know they 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 have like steady cam and like you know yeah. the the odd dolly shot and stuff. But it is yeah. just two it's just two lads in a garage. Yeah. Um, but it's really really good production value. But they're just it, it's just all really candid and yeah. just funny. Awesome. Reminds me of the um, Top Gear episode back in the era of Clarkson, Hammond, and May. Where they were doing British Top Gear versus Aussie Top Gear. The <laughs> race they did was a typical working vehicle from Australia yeah. and a typical working vehicle from the UK. So it was a transit van versus a Holborn Newt. Yeah. And uh, you just think, well, this is going to be embarrassing. Yeah. Three, two, one, go. Transit van is just off. Down the <laughs> the sound. Hammond's in there, like, what the fuck is happening? Turns out there's this transit van, you open up the back of it, and there's just a Jaguar XKR engine. In the back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Amazing. Um, right, Brett, what about you? Who are you sniffing? Hey, it's me. It's that guy. So I got a message from Eric from Cutworks, Cutworks Eric. Oh yeah. 
and he's actually um he's shown me a video or two <clears throat> from this gentleman before but now i'm going through uh the backlog because this guy's channel is seriously impressive and i'm not 100 percent sure like, i i don't know a lot about him i haven't been following him super super close but um he puts together insanely complicated models like thousands of pieces you know and, and yeah. very very small pieces and they're beautiful models so if you're into small things or model making or, or any of miniatures you might enjoy this what's funny is the first I don't know, 20 or 30 videos on this channel. It was, it's clearly his personal account. So there's just a bunch of weird <laughs> live shows uh, that he went to, I guess, and filmed yeah. um, from a decade ago. And then suddenly uh, he started getting into these model making things. But if you watch at least the most recent dozen, he's doing them all in stop motion. You never see his hands. And he kind of animates the pieces coming on screen and then building themselves and then going on to the bigger piece. Uh, he did a beautiful old tall ship, like single mass tall ship, not yeah. too far ago, uh, like four months ago. It looks like uh, the most recent one was a, a F-104J fighter that looks like it has a thousand parts to it and is very tiny. <laughs> and then he did... <sighs> Because he does them in stop motion and, and these frame-by-frame frame videos, that video specifically, the most recent one, if anybody wants to go check this out, at the very end of it, he actually 3D printed a scale human, the pilot, to get into the, awesome. uh, into the plane and then did every print is the correct frame, I guess, for whatever frame rate he's filming at. And like the person walks up to the plane and stands in front of it. And just yeah. the amount of attention to detail and like taking it way further than it needs to. And, you know, it's eight to 10 minutes long. You never see the guy. He never talks. Like <laughs> He has zero of himself in this other yeah. than extremely high level detail oriented building these things. I, I think it's fantastic. The fact that it's not done in some... Um, I don't know, over exaggerated way, or he, he doesn't seem like he's asking for a lot of attention, but people clearly like it. He's got a decent amount of subscribers already. The channel is called Tom's Modeling in Motion. Just spelled out exactly like that, but uh, I believe he's based in Germany. <laughs> I don't know anything about him, but he seems goddamn <laughs> delightful. Amazing. Is that just his hobby? I guess so. I don't know anything about it. Like, this kind of complete enigma amidst everything that's out there. I've never seen a channel like this before. But Eric, Eric sent me the message and and got me um, watching the guy. He sent me the yeah. boat one from a, a couple months back, and this most recent one, just with that little animation at the end, with printing the person out in all of these different three D prints. I was just like, Jesus Christ, this guy either needs more attention or maybe just doesn't care to have any more attention. I I don't know, yeah. but his channel's brilliant. Yeah, no, there's some really nice. looking, uh, really good looking thumbnails on there. So, good shout. Yeah. Um, right. That means it's me, and so we talked a little. Well, Joe mentioned briefly um, Phil that he works for. So I, I'm not going to shout out Phil, but I am going to just mention Phil as well because uh, Joe um, introduced me to Phil. Phil has 
a really good looking uh, Instagram feed. Um, and Joe is also doing a batch of arrowheads for Phil, little bodkins, um, which is why the other day I got to make a couple of little arrowheads. Uh, I think I showed you guys because um, Joe showed me how to actually make them properly rather than what I've been doing before. Um, so yeah, uh, Phil, Phil Brooks Longbow on Longbows on Instagram. Um, definitely worth checking out. And if you are into archery or anything, probably worth checking out his uh, website as well, chosenpathbushcraft.co.uk. Um, lots of good stuff on there. Again, both linked in the shows. But I'm actually going to shout out another uh, longbow maker who has the... He has the world record for the for pulling the heaviest longbow. Uh, I, I believe I've yeah. seen this gentleman. He pulled to a draw of I think twenty eight inches, a two hundred and twenty pound U longbow. Yeah, Jesus, which Christ. which is fucking tough. There's a video of it on YouTube. Uh, go and have a look. If uh, for anyone wondering, two hundred twenty pounds isn't how much the bow weighs. Two hundred twenty pounds is how much force it requires to pull the string back so um, it could yeah. it could shoot my tv yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically yeah. it could shoot you basically he, he could pick up your your tv one-armed um but so jo when joe was telling me about this he was really super excited and was like oh my god you've got to see this video you've got to see this video shows me this video and i was just like ah that's joe gibbs and he went yeah how do you know him i was like he lives about 10 minutes up the road uh i went to school with him um <laughs> So yeah, he's uh, Hillbilly Bows on Instagram, and he's not got a huge uh, Instagram thing. He doesn't. He's not on um, YouTube or anything like that. He just makes and sells um, longbows, uh, mostly laminates, but also single woods and stuff as well. Um, and yeah, like like you said, it's the if you want a really fucking heavy bow, then. Joe is the guy to go see. Um, he did a video with a, on YouTube with a guy called Todd's Workshop um, where they tested arrows against... Uh, oh, yeah. Plate re armor? Recreated plate armor from the crazy Agincourt time period. It's a really, really good video. And he's there, he's there shooting a 160-pound U longbow with pinpoint accuracy. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, I've, I've only ever played with um, bow and arrows a, a couple of times. And... Like even from a distance of like what was it like four meters, like getting accuracy on any kind of bow, and those were only like what twenty pound bows. Uh, they were about fifty five. Fifty yeah, fifty pound bows. Like getting any kind of accuracy with that was difficult enough. So doing it with something like that is like next level. Um, but I'm not going to start on the history of of um, long bows and stuff because that will turn into another massive long Joe rant. Um, but yeah, it's really fucking interesting, like some of the history behind it um, and getting to kind of have a little bit more of hands-on experience of what the guys back back in the day were dealing with um, was was quite interesting and very cool. Um, so yeah, go check out Joe. Uh, right. Is there any other business? Nope. Al, anything from you? Cool. Nope. In which case, uh, if you want to find us, we're in all of the usual social media places. You can find Joe at Joe Garnet underscore blacksmith on Instagram. Um, you can find both of us uh, on the YouTube channel, uh, which is uh, The Forge UK on YouTube. Um, if you follow me, you can find me at Moonshine Metalworks. If you want to follow 
Brett. You can follow him at Skullinsblade13 pretty much everywhere. And of course, Al is at Al's Hack Shack. Al's Wheel Shack! There we go. Oh. Wait, oh, yes. Rim Shack? Rim Shack. That's good. <laughs> that sounds so wrong. Uh, if we find us as a group, then Fools with Tools pretty much everywhere or FWT Podcast um, if you want to use the abbreviation. Um, that's it. So until next week, uh, have a good time. Shoot the shit with, you, some, with your friends. Learn some new stuff. Build a fire. Throw some petrol on it. Have fun. <laughs> we love you all. <laughs>